I, I won't take credit for the saying, but my, my job as the pastor is not to be your Holy Spirit, but I, I have, um, I'm supposed to declare the word of God and it should do two things. It should uh, comfort the afflicted and afflict the comfortable. And, uh, and that's sort of, uh, it's the two-edged sword this morning. Uh, we, we, we get comfortable in just the idea of faith and sort of the protocols, but not really um, living that out. And, um, but there's an encouragement too with the other side of that, which is I want to encourage you towards faith and towards a faithful finish because things might be discouraging or you might feel worn down by sin or feel like your faith isn't very vibrant. And so uh, my goal this morning is to get all of that into you through God's word. So let's pray together. We'll read the text and uh, see what the Lord would have for us this morning. Father, I pray um, for our time together in your word that you would um, honor um, your promise to um, have that go out, your word, and it would not return void this morning. So um, I ask that you would, through uh, speaking and declaring um, what your truth is, that we would be afflicted if we're in a comfortable position and we find ourselves apathetic towards um, faith. Or we might feel discouraged and we don't know um, how we go forward, how we move forward. And for those that um, are poor in spirit this morning, would you um, encourage them in your word and in our time together? So, Father, I ask that you would give us what we need to make this a fruitful and productive effort. And that would be um, me getting out of the way and decreasing so that uh, you would be seen in your word and truth and that you would give us eyes to see you, ears to hear your voice, and hearts that would be receptive to your word. We love you. Ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, well, um, let's read this morning. I'm going to read uh, from verse 54 all the way through um, the next chapter in uh, verse 4. And uh, that's going to give us the context for the end of Stephen's life and then sort of the ramifications of thereafter of what happens in the church because of his witness and because he's a faithful witness um, even to the end. So if you're with me, here we go in verse 54 of chapter 7. It says, when they heard these things, they were enraged. The, the they there is the Sanhedrin. When they heard these things, they were enraged and they ground their teeth at him. But he full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven, and he saw the glory of God. And Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens open, and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice, and they stopped their ears, and they rushed together at him. Then they cast him out of the city, and they stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold the sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. And Saul approved of his execution. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered, scattered throughout the, re the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen. They made great lamentation over him. But Saul was ravaging the church, and entering house after house, he dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Well, to catch you up, um, just so we're all on the same page here, we see Stephen dying, and the word that we use for that is, is martyr. 
And uh, I introduced that to you two weeks ago, not because somebody was dying, but because they were witnessing. And the word martyr properly means in the Greek, a witness. And a witness is, again, someone who has experience and knowledge that can establish the truth or the credibility of something. That is what Stephen had just done. That's what he's done throughout his life. He's, he's living out what it is that he knows the truth to be, and therefore he is a martyr before he actually dies for the cause. Now, the way that we use martyr, or the current definition, if we're going to use it, um, just in common, common parlance, is one who makes a great sacrifice or who suffers much or dies in support of a belief, a cause, or a principle, right? So just somebody who, by way of uh, their commitment to the cause, suffers some kind of loss. And so we are called to be martyrs in both senses. Uh, we're called to be witnesses for Christ. That is what uh, Jesus told the, the apostles and the disciples, what they were going to do. You're going to be my witnesses in um, through their testimony, through their witness, we become witnesses. And so the, the cycle just keeps on moving. So while the idea of a martyr um, for us seems to be like immediately connected to the idea of death, it's not so much death that makes the martyr important, it's the life. It's the life that is lived for the cause that is characterized by the giving up and the suffering and the letting go for the cause that makes a martyr a martyr. So the commitment in spite of opposition or scrutiny or pressure when hostile conditions come, makes the evidence of the belief all the more consistent or powerful. Now, when that person actually believes and holds fast to that, even to the point of death, now that can be encouraging or inspiring. And so we would say that the death is important, but the life far more so. So I want to talk about the life part of it, because we could focus and hyper-focus on the idea of death, and we could do a four-week series on preparing to be stoned, but that's not probably in your immediate future. But you know what is? needing to live faithfully until that time would come, right? And so we need to concentrate on that. And we get the idea of being a martyr um, in other areas of Scripture when we say things like, well, you should, you're, you're called to be a living sacrifice, right? You're, you're one who gives up everything because um, God gave all for you. So the hope of life right now and the hope in death is established by the faithfulness of how we live in our current context. So to make sense of the idea that we're all called, called to be martyrs and to make sense of what Stephen has done and to make sense of his life, we need to see that he's the rule, not the exception. We think of martyrs as the exception, but they're not. They're the rule. And he's living out the reality of what we're all called to do. And so being a faithful witness is something you and I are called to do in our everyday life. So someone who dies for Christ is good and important, and that's helpful. And we'll see how that moves forward the gospel next week. We see at the end of that, that even though um, Saul approves of the execution, it says a great persecution came on the church and they spread out. And that becomes the seed for the gospel going outside into the places exactly the way Jesus predicted that it would and prophesied that it would be spread out. And so sometimes persecution is for our benefit. We'll talk about more about that next week. So it's the life and the living that matters. I want to pound that in today. It's the life and the living that matters. Your life of faithfulness is what is key. We see here that that's done because Stephen is, look at it, full of the Holy Spirit. We're told over and over and over the things that Stephen is doing are by way of the Spirit. It's the Spirit that's filling his mouth for speech. It's the Spirit by which he's speaking. It's the Holy Spirit that, um, that caused him to be one of the ordained uh, deacons of the church. So the Spirit is operating in his life. And the Spirit accomplishes a work that we talked about last week. Importantly, the circumcision of our heart that causes us to love God. So you're either living and believing and doing in faith by the Spirit, 
Well, slow down. You're either living, believing, and doing by faith in the Spirit for the glory of God, or what you're doing is you're carting around a dead flesh carcass that is sin, right? And those are sort of the two uh, identities that you have. There's, there's either somebody that's living and breathing and walking, being led by the Spirit, doing things full of the Holy Spirit, or there's people who are living in the flesh, and they're carting around what's something that is supposed to already be dead in our lives if we proclaim to be Christians. Physical death is a certainty. It's part of living. You will die. That will mark the end of your physical existence. That's, that's for sure. But we who are Christians are supposed to have reckoned our death to already have happened. The death of yourself should already have occurred if you are one who is living for Christ. Our death is something we reckon to have already occurred. In Galatians 2.20, we say this, I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and he gave himself for me. Okay, so some things importantly underlined there is that it's something that happened in the past. I have been crucified with Christ, and with him I died. It's no longer I who's living in the flesh, but it's Christ's life in and through me. So a faithful life is one that's thought of as walking in faith, again, led by the Spirit, and it's the product of putting off the thing that's already dead, which is the old self. So in Ephesians chapter 4, and verse 22, we're encouraged to do this. Put off your old self which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through its deceitful desires. And be renewed in the spirit of your minds and put on the new self, which is created in the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. So putting off the old self, the old way of living, the dead thing is what we're encouraged to do by the work of the spirit. So dying is something that you should be doing as part of faithful living. Did you hear that? Dying is something you are doing as part of faithful living because you're putting off what is already dead, okay? So having resurrection life right now is something we get because Christ is crucified and we're risen with him and we're living right now in that resurrection life. That's what's animating, hopefully, your flesh. And that's the, the picture that we're, we're drawn to. So I want to make a distinction here that this is not Gnosticism, Gnosticism is, is an ancient heresy. It means, gnosis just means knowledge. And the idea was this, that there was like a secret knowledge. And uh, the reason why uh, this is a heresy is because they made a, a sharp distinction between what is physical or the flesh and what is spiritual. And so what the end result of that, um, that perspective or that way of thinking was, was they must deny that Jesus came in the flesh because the flesh is sinful and the flesh is physical. So what they did was like, Jesus was just a spirit, spirit being, and the idea of Jesus is the secret knowledge, and that's what regenerates you. And so they, they had to deny that Jesus came in the flesh. But John tells us that if anybody can't acknowledge that Jesus came in the flesh, then that person is not of God. So essentially, um, don't, don't fall into the idea of thinking that your physical flesh is a sinful thing, and therefore that's what you're putting off. That the flesh is, is a general category, and that's one that I want to address this morning. So in Romans chapter 8, um, this, this whole thing is, is laid out. It's laid out in chapter 6 and then again in chapter 8, but I want to point out a few things. In Romans chapter 8, I'm going to start in verse 5, and I'll read this to you, and then I'll highlight a couple of things at the end, getting to chapter, or excuse me, in verse 12. So I'll start reading verse 5 of, of Romans 8. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death. To 
Set the mind on the flesh is what? Okay. Set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. So this is what we talked about last week in the reality of faith being something that the Holy Spirit must do for you so that you can see beyond what's blinding you. And that's what it's saying is if you're living um, in, the, in the flesh, you can't even submit to God's law. It's not possible for you. Okay? And then in verse 8, he goes on to say, those who, those who are in the flesh can't please God, which is just an echo of the statement in Hebrews. Without faith, it's impossible to please God. So you can't serve him. You don't know him. In verse 9, you, however, are not in the flesh, but in the spirit. If, in fact, the spirit of God dwells in you, anyone who does not have the spirit of Christ does not belong to him. So an interesting thing that just happened in, that, that Paul is doing there is he says, look, if, if you have the spirit, you've been born again. And then he transitions right there and he says the spirit of Christ. And so he makes the Holy Spirit and Christ on, on, on the same level so that we understand what's happening there. So anyone who does not have the spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, Although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness, okay? If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you, okay? So he's making this distinction about spirit life and living and being in the flesh and being submitting to that and being hostile to God and not serving him and not having the spirit. So then he rounds us out in verse 12. So then, brothers, we are debtors, or servants, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the flesh, you will live. So the maxim is, is there right at the end. If you live according to the flesh, you will what? And if you live according to the Spirit, you will? Okay, so we have two distinct categories, spirit versus flesh. Which one which one are you submitted to? Which one has control and power over your life? Which one is coming out in your deeds? And so it's, it's pretty simple. Living by faith, led by the Spirit, you will receive life or experience life or be walking in life. But if you're walking by sight, if you're walking to gratify your desires of the flesh, then you will have death. That's your reward. So we are either killing sin or it's killing us. You're either killing sin or it's putting you to death by your service of it. So those that are led by the Spirit and have spirit life are to be putting to death. That is to put off, to kill, to get rid of the things of the flesh and live according to the Spirit. And so you're supposed to be already dead to that. And so that's literally, in the most literal sense, dead weight. Do you see the picture? It's dead weight. You're supposed to put it off and put it away. Now, we talked about um, if you had the opportunity or maybe if you were forced into some scenario where you had to participate in the Olympics for the preservation of your life, okay? Um, I believe it was a comedian, and he suggested that sometimes um, we don't appreciate Olympic-level athletes because they go out there, they do their thing, and we see the guy come in last place, and maybe he's trailing like in a race. And you go, well, he's not very good. And you think, if I was in that race, maybe I could have beat that guy. And so what you do is you miss the entire disparity between you and an Olympic-level athlete. And the truth is, if you got the opportunity, not only would you be lapped far, far, like three and four times, you would probably pass out and die somewhere in the middle of the race, right? 
right? As you're on your second donut of a Tuesday morning and that guy has spent the last however many years training and sacrificing and preparing. He comes in the right gear. He's wearing like next to nothing so that there's no extra weight. You show up in sweats, have your cell phone. You probably stop in the middle, take a selfie just to show everybody what you're doing. Like you're not prepared for Olympic level competition. Would you agree? Yes. You're not prepared. And so there's a ridiculous gap between the way that we approach the race of life and the way that somebody that's unprepared would approach an Olympic level race. And so what we find out is that the flesh becomes an obstacle for us to competing into or to living out the life of faith in the way that we're encouraged to do that. And so the flesh here as a category is referred to a lot of different ways in scripture. And here's just a few of them. The old man we, we talked about, the one that's, that's dead, our old self, the body of sin, our old nature, our worldly appetites, the earthly body and a tent. And so over the next two weeks, I want to talk about what the flesh is doing as an obstacle to you running the race of faith in the way that you're called to run the race of faith. And so this week, we're going to just talk about the first two of those, which is temptation to sin and indulgence in sin. And so that is the deceit of sin, the one that, that brings you in and tells you and whispers to you, you can do this. You, you can keep this and run the race. You can wear your sweats and you can keep your cell phone in your pocket and maybe a bag of chips in case you get hungry on the way, and that's okay. That's the deceit of sin. Or maybe the things, the indulgent sin, where you just think it's okay. Like, I'll just, I'll just keep these things with me. It won't really matter. It won't, harper, or it won't hamper my progress. And that's a lie. So those are the first two. I want to cover those this week. And then next week, we want to talk about the wearing out, literally, of our physical body, which is called the tent. And that does things to us that causes us to lose our, our energy and our emphasis. And we, we're just tired. And it's a lot easier to not pursue the, the finish line in the way that we're encouraged to in living out our faith. And then the last one would be the pressing of our flesh, which is the, 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 the pressure and the tribulation and the trials that come from the world system that calls us to just give up, right? And that's what we see happening in the text, that Stephen's um, experiencing probably a, a lot of different things. They're telling him there's an easier route to go, right? And, and that there's a system in place that's going to make it impossible or, or, or bid him to not do what he knows he ought to do. And so this is definitely something that we experience. And so I want to talk about that next week. But so this week, we're just talking about the first two. So Paul tells us in Philippians chapter three, starting in verse 12, he, he gives us um, a helpful like encouragement. He doesn't put the finish line uh, as something at perfection. He makes it something that you can relate to. So in, in, in Philippians 3, in, starting in verse 12, says this, not that I have already attained this or am already perfect, okay? So he's already saying, look, th there's a standard here, but I haven't even got there yet. And so I don't want you to feel like it's, 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 it's impossible to do. But I do press on to make it my own because Christ made me his own. And then in verse 13, he says this, brothers, I do not consider that I've made it my own. So he reiterates, he reiterates the idea that he's not there yet. He's not arrived. But, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind. I don't, I don't look back at the progress I've had. I don't look at the problems that are behind me, good or bad. I stream forward to what lies up ahead. I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call in Christ Jesus. And he goes on to say, let those of us who are mature think this way. If in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that to you also. 
That's a loaded sentence, but I don't have time for it this morning. 16, he goes on to say, so let us hold true to what we have attained. Brothers, join me in imitating. Keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example that you have in us. So there's a good example. Those, are the, those that are striving forward, those are looking forward, not um, falling behind, not paying attention to what's behind them. And then in verse 18, he gives a warning. For many of whom I often told you, now tell you even with tears, they walk as enemies of Christ. They walk as enemies of the cross and of Christ. And then he tells the result of what happens if you're someone that's walking as an enemy of the cross and of Christ. Their end is their destruction, and their God is their belly, and they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we wait a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. And so he addresses that second half of the flesh towards the end of that section there that's in um, Philippians 3, if you want to scribble that down later for an encouragement. So there's competing things that are vying for your affection and for your attention, and what we follow and what we're motivated by determines the course that we run or how we look at the course. Uh, We can do so wrongly, and, and then we choose to participate in a way that doesn't make any sense. And that becomes a spectacle. You're not participating as one who's a trained athlete, but more as one who's out there just for fun, and it looks silly. And you don't want to run the race of faith as one who looks silly or one who would be um, denying the reality of what we're supposed to be, which is a new man or a new woman in Christ. So we made uh, an incorrect conflation. That just means you've put two things together that aren't true, okay? You've made a conflation that grace assures your salvation. Now, before you gasp and clutch your pearls, okay, I will qualify that statement. Grace makes salvation possible, it is the description of the means and the quality and the assurance, but grace is not your salvation. Here's why. Because the fact that grace exists as a general thing, which means that it's unmerited, if it just existed as a general principle, then everyone would be saved. Does it make sense? If grace just was this blanket thing that was out there, and, it, and you, can't, you can't grab it, you can't merit it, which is true, But if grace assured salvation, then everyone would be saved and universalism is there. And the cross of Christ is unnecessary and so too was his life and death. Does it make sense? So grace is not your salvation, but we've we've rested in that that thought. Well, it's it's grace. I'll just keep sinning all the more. So then you get Romans chapter 6. Should we continue in sin that grace might abound? So then Paul decides to write a whole chapter about why we can't do that. So here's the problem. We falsely rest in the lie that grace invites us to complacency. But really what that lie is, is the deception of sin that says you can walk as an enemy of Christ and still be his friend. Let me say that again. Grace does not mean that you can harbor sin and walk as an enemy of the cross and still be saved. So, so don't rest in that lie. Don't buy that lie. There is no distinction then between someone who is a completely unregenerate sinner and someone who, quote-unquote, is just living in grace. Do you see that? And that's an impossibility. That's nowhere in Scripture. This falls under another heresy. A man by the name of Pelagius came up with this idea. It's called Pelagianism, which is essentially this. There is no law. just grace. Everything's grace. Just do whatever you want so long as you believe in Jesus, right? Something like that. That's that's a lie, and we can't rest in that. So in Romans chapter 6, we're told this. We know that our old self was crucified. It's, again, in the past tense, our old self was crucified with him in order that 
the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we no longer would be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from it. So in the, in the last scripture I read, it said, you're not a debtor to sin. That's the same idea. You're not a slave to it. It doesn't control you. It's, 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 it's dead, okay? So you've been freed from it. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we also will live with him. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive in God in Christ Jesus, okay? It's, it's gone. It's something that you shouldn't have access to. It does no dominion over your life. It does not control what you do. And then in verse 12, he says, let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. It's, I want you to see the categorical, categorical language. It's not gray at all. Don't do it. Don't let it reign in your body. There is no excuse for it. it it's not just, oh, grace makes it okay. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under law, but under... He didn't negate grace. He's saying grace makes you obedient. It will make you not present your members as dominion to sin. So he hasn't, he hasn't gotten rid of grace. He says it's right there. You're not, you're not under the law, but you're under grace. But because of that, because, you, because grace has been brought to you, the old body of sin is dead. That's what the grace is, okay? So this is the kind of thinking that Stephen would be addressing, is the entitlement to salvation based on a simple categorization. I belong to Israel, therefore I am good. I belong to the church, therefore I'm good. I'll live how I want. Okay? There's no, there's no distinction in that kind of thinking of what's happening in, in, um, in the lives of the, the Israelites and in our lives if we buy that lie. And this is, um, when, when Stephen points that out, that's why they get so upset. They're gnashing their teeth at him and they then decide to stone him because of that. And that goes back to the reality that they can't submit to God's truth. They can't see it. They can't perceive it. And so they resist it. So we're encouraged then because of all this, to put it off, how do we do that? Well, in Hebrews chapter 12, we're, we're told some information about how we ought to live faithfully in this reality. So Hebrews chapter 12, you've heard this scripture, I'm sure, before. Therefore, since we're surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside or throw off every weight and sin which clings so closely. And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross, he despised shame, and he's seated at the right hand of the throne of God. In, in, in the end of that, you just get the picture of what you see at the end of Stephen's life, which is that the heavens are open, he sees the glory of God, he declares it, he says, I see him at the right hand, and then he's talking to Jesus, and so we see this play out, but just before that, we're encouraged to do something very important. Run with endurance a race that is set before you. And not just in a way that's like ho-hum around the track. It's throw off all of the old stuff, all of the old junk that will cling so closely to you and cause you to run as one who is not after the prize. The one, um, and so it refers to this, uh, this cloud of witnesses. So all of Hebrews chapter 11 is that hall of faith that talks about people who by faith trusted God for something better. 
God made a promise, they believed that promise, and then acted on that promise. That's the activity of faith, right? Putting your weight in the wheelbarrow from last week, right? So Hebrews chapter 11, he goes through this whole long list of people who by faith did that. And he says, because they were able to do this, look at their example. And we might think we're surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses. They're witnessing what we're doing. And you've missed the, the subject of the witness. You're supposed to look to them as the witness to you that it can be done. That it is worthwhile to put off whatever it is that you must forego to be faithful to God. And so that's, that's what we're supposed to look at. Look at this great cloud of witnesses who by faith trusted God for something better. Because you must always, by faith, trust God that whatever it is that you're giving up is actually, is actually gaining by losing. And that's what turns the whole thing on its head. To, to give up something that's promising a short-term game, so you're, you're, you're quote-unquote losing that thing, but actually you're gaining more. You're gaining faithfulness. You're gaining efficiency. You're, you're becoming more faithful. And so you gain by losing. Do you see that? The living walking in death clothes is the problem. A living person who's walking around in the state of a former condition in death clothes is the problem. Living a holy life requires faith and trust. Walking through life, denying temptation is to trust God for something better. And we're told that this sin is what trips us. us. It, it, it entangles us. It's binding you. It's not an essential thing. It's just something that you've decided to let cling on to you. And so you're told to cast it aside. And the quickest way, or, or the best example, I should say, of this comes in the story of Lazarus. You, you, you know the story, I hope, in John chapter 11, if you want to scribble that down. It's, it's pretty short in terms of what the actual miracle is. But if you know that Jesus is on his way to Bethany, he delays for a few days. Lazarus was very sick. He ends up coming. Lazarus has been dead for a few days. There's much back and forth between him and Lazarus' sisters about why this was occurring and what Jesus could have done otherwise. But in verse 43, I just want you to see the miracle proper. Lazarus had been dead in the tomb for quite a while, but Jesus said, when he had said these things about being the resurrection, he said, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. In that moment, Lazarus was given life. He's, he's resurrected. He's resuscitated. He's made alive again. And it says, the man who had died came out, but his hands and his feet were bound with linen strips and his face with a cloth. And Jesus said, unbind him and let him go. Okay, so here's the miracle, right? Lazarus, who is dead, is now living. Hooray and amen, right? But he comes out and he's got the state of his former condition around him. Can you see it? The grave clothes. The living, walking, in death clothes. That's, that's the condition that can't stand. Walking around in death clothes does many things but I want to cover a few of, of the problems of them, right? One is it contradicts the reality. What reality is that? That if you have been made alive in Christ, the body of sin, the old man is dead. I don't know if you saw the movie. I never actually probably saw the movie, but you remember Weekend at Bernie's. Bernie's dead. And there's like animating a corpse. Would you, would you decide to just carry a dead body around with you so that it could experience all the things that you're experiencing? It, it contradicts the reality of what's supposed to be true is that you are a living person animated by the Spirit of God. So it contradicts the reality. It also contaminates your living, right? Whatever it is that you go to do, you just have like a dead thing around with you, which is kind of gross. It even says in the King James, right? What was the problem with opening the, the tomb? He stinks, man. He's rotting, okay? 
that contaminates your living or your living space, it costs your efficiency. It's dead weight. Why would you carry something around you don't need that makes you less efficient in your race? And it continues your former condition beyond what it must, must need. You, you needn't carry it around anymore. There's nothing forcing you to do it other than the deception that you think it serves you some purpose when indeed it doesn't. So there's two elements to the things that they remove off of Lazarus. They said it was, there's, there's, there's strips around his hands and his feet, right? And, and if you want to just get super allegorical with this, um, the things that you put your hands to, the deeds that you do, those are something that you ought not to have bound up in death or in sin or your old manner of doing things. And the places where you walk or where you go ought not to be wrapped in death. The places and how you walk, right? And so you probably have some idea in your head of Lazarus being a mummy, right? He's like in the Egyptian way where he's wrapped in linen strips. Um, the, the, the word here is properly used to, um, it's only used one other time, by the way. And it's used in the Old Testament in this Greek form of a belt or something that's, that's binding things. It was probably like this. Lazarus was probably wrapped in, a, in, in sheets of linen and then he was bound around like a belt around his feet and his hands. And it says there's a napkin or a face cloth over his face. And that's not like this. It's like this around his forehead. You remember like um, Marley in the Christmas Carol? And they wrap it around so your dead jaw doesn't just slack open, right? That's what's happening in here. So he's bound hand and foot with, with something that would encumber him from doing anything worthwhile. Do you see that? So the grave clothes in this sense are the things that are keeping him from acting and doing and, 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 and reflecting what's true, which is that he's a living guy now. He should ought not to be wrapped up in a way that's dead. And then to have his mouth bound or not be able to speak because his jaw is literally wrapped shut, right? And so Jesus makes the command to remove it or unbind him. I was reading um, Spurgeon's uh, exposition of this particular miracle. He said, Jesus never performs a miracle on anything that can be accomplished or obtained by natural means. Jesus had to provide the resurrection life but then he commands those that are around to unbind Lazarus. He didn't have to miracle Lazarus out of the clothes, but he does employ those that are around to help unbind Lazarus. And this is a great picture of the church. And it's probably true of, uh, we could say, if we want to stretch it just mildly, for what Stephen did. We, we know in, um, what is it uh, chapter 4, uh, 24, where it says that, uh, or maybe it's earlier than that, two. 42. That's what it was. I had my numbers mixed up. 242, right? Where it says they committed themselves to the, the apostles' teaching and prayer and the fellowship. And so we see the importance of being surrounded by others who um, can help us. And he says, let me read you the Spurgeon quote. Jesus never performs a miracle if it can be accomplished or obtained by natural means. If there's anything in the kingdom of God which we can do ourselves, it is folly to say, may the Lord do it. For he will do nothing of the sort. If you can do it, you shall do it. And if you don't do it or you neglect to do it, it shall be visited upon you. So Jesus gives the resurrection life. He comes out and there's a command, unbind him. You could maybe not do it. They could let him hop around with his hands and feet bound with his not being unable to speak. But Jesus didn't have to miracle him out of that, but he definitely gave the command to do it. And so by not doing it, the neglect of doing that will be visited upon you, which would be walking in your old former condition, which is foolishness. So Lazarus was not alone or unequipped, just as we're not alone or unequipped. 
So all of this, I, I wanted to do um, a couple things. One is to drive home the necessity or the importance of not just saying grace covers everything. That there's a, there's a, there's a real distinction in, in walking by the Spirit and walking in the flesh. And, and you can't just say, well, uh, it's okay. And the other part of that is that we need to see that the putting off is something that's commanded. And so there's a reality that's supposed to be there. You're a new man. You're a new woman. You're animated, inhabited by the Spirit of God. So walk in that. And so the question is, how do we then, how? What is the means of putting off the old stuff? How does that occur? Well, we're told uh, a couple different places how it occurs, but it always comes to the same point, by looking to Christ. Look to Christ the author and finisher of our faith. Looking to Jesus, and the looking is, it's like present tense, it's ongoing. It's not look to Jesus, it's looking and looking and continue to look. And so if you're ever in doubt, look to Jesus. How does looking to Jesus help you to put off sin? Or how does it help you walk by the Spirit? Look what happens at the end of Stephen's life. Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven, and he saw the glory of God. And Jesus is standing at the right hand of God. At this moment, Stephen gets to see two things that you and I would probably never be privy to on this side of the flesh, which is that Jesus was exactly who he said he was. And he went exactly to the place where he said he was going to go, which confirms the receipt of the payment, that Jesus paid the price for sin And because it was a full and sufficient payment, he's accepted, and now he has resurrection life. And he sees him standing, living at the right hand, and he's ruling. And so Stephen gets to see this glimpse, and that's the encouragement to move forward. He confirms it in verse 56. Behold, I see the heavens open, and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. You looking to Christ, looking to his word, being with his people, is what will help you unbind your life from sin. living our lives by God's word, being surrounded by the people of God, looking to the witnesses who have gone on before that have shown you what faith looks like to putting off old things. Hebrews 4.12 gives us a very clear picture of how we can do that by looking to Jesus and looking to his word. Hebrews 4.12, the word of God is living and active. It's sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit and joints and marrow and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. If you're not sure what's walking by the spirit and what's walking by the flesh, look in God's word. It will divide those things for you. And it won't mince between them. You don't have to wonder whether or not this is in and that's out. It's clear Christ must be our fixation. His word must be our guide. He must be more and better than any other promise that sin whispers to your desires and your ears that says, you need me. This encourages faith that's required to kill sin by the Spirit. Truth is at the bottom of this. Truth is the instrument to get rid of sin. This is why we look to Jesus, who is the truth. We concentrate on that. We're renewed by the truth. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Be conformed into the image of Christ by looking to Christ. It's Christ and his life and his sacrifice that by seeing that, we see what we are and who we are. The gospel reminds you of of both sides, that you needed a sacrifice, but the sacrifice was made. Okay? Okay? 
You, you needed someone to pay the debt, but the debt was paid. It's like holding the receipt. That's what happens when you look to Christ as, as the resurrected reigning Messiah. This is how we cut off the bindings and cords and the dead weight because the price was paid for you. There's a specific set of motivations. And then we see that was accepted. I'm accepted because of the payment that was made for me. So I see my position now. And so the deceitfulness of sin coming to you and convincing you that it would be worse for you to unburden your life of something should fall away. We feel sorry for ourselves. I have to give that up? That would be so hard. Yes, yes, it would be hard. But what you get in return is gaining by losing. Paul's encouragement to us, he's not the standard. I haven't obtained it yet, but this is what I strive after, to increase, to do more, to run harder, to throw off more and better. Lazarus' life, well, he was brought to life, but he wasn't left in the grave. Okay? That, that, I, um, that's the, the mistake we make. I, I've, I've been brought to life, but I'm trapped in the grave. That would be to say, I'm slave to sin still. I must obey whatever. I can't, get, I can't even get out of the tomb, let alone get out of the grave clothes, right? That's what it is to say grace covers everything. In Hosea, which is an Old Testament prophet, Hosea is a prophet, and he's commanded by the Lord to marry a prostitute. And, and the reason why God tells him to do this is because he says, I want you to know I want you to make an example. I want you, the people to see vividly what it is for me to be your God married to you as an unfaithful bride. And, uh, and it's, 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 we, we only go so far sometimes to think, well, that'd be rough to have a, a woman who commits adultery. And it's not just a woman who commits adultery. She's a, she's a prostitute. She's enslaved to it. Okay? In Hosea chapter 3, Hosea, once again, must go and redeem Gomer out of her prostitution. So he buys her for a sum. She's enslaved to this thing. He buys her for a sum, but he doesn't leave her in the whorehouse. It says, you come home with me. Remove yourself out of the sin so that the people can see what it is for, for, um, for you one to experience a faithful husband and for the people to see what it is for us to be married faithfully. God has not left you in the grave and he does not leave you in the whorehouse. Jesus makes this a command. If your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. If your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. That, that's, it. that's extreme. It is better to be in physical life with less than to be thrown into hell. And there's the warning. So my job this morning is to apply this truth and set it before you. You... you could be in, in, in two camps, and, um, and I, I empathize with both. One is just running with a weight so long or running with bound so long that you've become accustomed to it and, and you've forgotten that you're actually called to run free of that weight. And I, I'm telling you that not as my encouragement, but to point it out as a command because the result of running in the flesh is what? Death. So running by the Spirit then is life. And then there's the other side of it 
which is like, I, I don't know if I could give that thing up. I, I feel like it would be hard or I'm not sure how to do it. I'm, I'm presenting it before you so that you can see the means to do that is available to you. It's available to you by God's word. It's available to you by the family of God that's around you to encourage you and help you see the difference between truth and error and the witnesses that you have in scripture that say, this is what faith can do. You can leave your life. You can leave your home. You can leave your family. You can sacrifice much and you receive the reward of life. You give up, but you gain. One thing I do, forget what lies behind, strain forward to what lies ahead. Press on towards the goal for the upward call in Christ Jesus. And the next week, we'll ask, how do we do that? How do we stay encouraged? How do we stay motivated for that? But this morning, I wanna pray for us. And I do wanna give you an opportunity to respond and reflect on anything that God might lay on your heart that you've been carrying around, that you're trying to run a race, or you look foolish, you're carrying a dead corpse on your back, when you've been called to run at an Olympic level, you've been equipped to run at an Olympic level, you have the means. Something, something like this, like means plus talent plus work can equal running an efficient race. But if you're missing any aspect of that, you're just average Joe trying to keep up. And that, that race is not one that you can compete in. 